Let me pray for us. Jesus, we do not know where you will take us. Uh, we're foolish to imagine we can answer the questions only you have the answers to about our lives, or to think that our plans somehow aren't fragile and can have any kind of certainty to them. We do not know where you will take us, but we do know that you are good. Help us to see this, to know it, to follow you in that. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Please do grab your Bibles again or your phone device that you're using and find Hebrews chapter 11 again. We are going to get there in a few moments and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our important time. It's on page 1209, page 1209 and Hebrews chapter 11. But I want to start with a question, a question I'd like you to at least make an attempt of answering in your own mind. Here's the question. What does faith make? What kind of person does following Jesus generate? What does faith make? Characteristics of someone who is leaning hard on Jesus. Or put it, or put it into another kind of category, another kind of arena. What kind of adults are produced within the context of a family that is full of faith. Now it is God who gives faith to us all. But if a child is raised in a genuine, Bible-defined faith family, what kind of adult does that generate? How do you answer that question? One of those two questions for a moment. Some of you have babies to come in the next few months. What's it going to look like for that child in your family? What kind of adult will they become? What does faith generate as you follow him? See, I wonder if some of the answers that come out, what does true faith make in a person? Are answers like, well, it makes a person who is, is, is peace-orientated and civilised and a good citizen and pious. God help us, right? Yeah. Or, or, or being raised in a Christian family, a, a family where Jesus is at the heart and the centre. Um, that kind of adult from that family is polite and rounded and stable and emotionally intelligent and a great contributor. I'm glad you're laughing, right? I'm glad you're laughing. Because in the Bible, what faith generates and what being part of a, a family with Jesus at the heart and leaning hard in him generates, if God chooses to plant faith in that child, that is God's work. What it generates is fearless barbarians. That's the best I've got so far. Okay? That when I read the Bible and I look at the men and women in the Bible who are there to inspire us and motivate us of what it means to follow Jesus, I do not see domesticated, placid, pious, nice people. I see barbarians. Now, I don't mean that they are cruel. Or, or unkind, or crude. I don't mean barbarian in that sense. I mean they are lawless, and untamable, and uncontrollable, and have, have a law unto themselves, and they're dangerous in society. That's what I mean by barbarians. Unrestrainable. Free. Free. People like John the Baptist. People brought up with parents like Zachariah and Elizabeth who named their son John. And in the womb of his mother, he's Jesus, his cousin, when the two mums got together and hugs and the bellies bumped, that little John the Baptist praises Jesus as a fetus. 
It's there in the Bible. Praise the Lord. <laughs> like it's there in the Bible. Yeah? And then he grows up and he's in the desert, right? And he, he's a teenager. He's 16, 17, 18 years old. He goes to live in the desert and he eats locusts and honey. I guess the honey is just washing down the locusts. Our boys every now and again catch a cockroach and crunch through it. And they tell me that it's really bitter. So you've got to have the honey alongside the, the yeah? And then he meets the religious leaders of the day, the posh ones, educated Doctor, doctor, reverend, reverend. And what does John do? What does he say? You brood of vipers. You are scaly, and disgusting, and venomous. <laughs> He's a barbarian. You don't take him into polite company, do you? <laughs> With his camel hair, coat, you know. Yeah, Woo. yeah. And then, before he's the age of 35, he stands before the great cruel leader, the governor, nasty, nasty man, Herod, and unashamedly, repeatedly, he says to Herod, Herod, stop having sex with your brother's wife. It is wrong. Stop it. And he gets his head decapitated and put on a dessert platter for the feast to laugh at and mock in celebration of a strict tease done by a 14-year-old. He's a law unto himself, isn't he? He's a barbarian. And yet, he is there not as an exception, but as the rule. He's there to say, this is what following Jesus is like. He's the prototype. John the Baptist, Jesus, his cousin. Fearless, barbarian. Or take, for example, that amazing woman in Luke chapter 7. You can read in Luke 7, 36 to 50, this amazing woman. I don't know her backstory, but I doubt she chose the, the, the job when she was a little girl, but she'd lived her life as a prostitute. And she's pursuing after Jesus, and she longs for Jesus, and she delights in Jesus, and she sees Jesus invited to the Archbishop Simon's great dinner party with all the bigwigs. And somehow she managed to get into this great banquet and sitting around the table, the men recognize her. How come? <laughs> yeah? And Simon knows what her job is. How come? Right? Can you imagine that room? That woman? But she's a law unto herself, a law only to Jesus. She is fearless to get to Jesus. And she comes to him with all the murmuring around that table. And even with Simon explicitly naming her as a prostitute, she still comes to Jesus. What a woman she is, eh? And she takes all the wealth she ever had, probably passed down from her grandmother to her mother, contained in this jar of expensive perfume. And she doesn't take the lid off and pour a bit out. She cracks it wide open and lets it flood onto Jesus' feet in an act of worship, and trust and delight. And then in what could only have been an incredibly sensual act, she wipes the residue off with her hair at Jesus' feet. She's a barbarian, isn't she? You start to know what I mean by that word now? Uncontrollable, unrestrainable, untamable. She's amazing. She is free and wild. Or think about the great apostle Paul, uh, wrote so much of the Bible, planted so many churches. 
I've been reading through Acts as part of my daily Bible readings. I hope you do that in some way, shape or form. It's a brilliant, encouraging thing to do. I'm reading through the story of the first churches and feeling about this tall compared to these, these great people. And I bump into Paul in Acts 21. And Agapus, they're in a planning meeting for his travels and Jerusalem's the next stop and they're getting everything ready. And Agapus, who is a tried and tested, proven predictor of the future, back in Acts chapter 12, he got this famine right and saved thousands of lives. So everyone trusts his ability to have foresight. And he says, look, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to take you prisoner. And because Agapus was a bit of a diva, he grabs a belt and wraps himself up in the belt and says, they're going to do this to you, Paul. He's bouncing around like this, yeah. And they're going to silence you. Don't go to Jerusalem. And all Paul's wise counsellors around the table helping with his travel plans goes, yes, 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 yes. Listen to Agapus. Listen to Abacus. Do you know what, do you know what Paul says? You're right. If I go, I'm in prison and beaten and tortured. You're right. But God says, go, so I'm going. And they're like, Paul, he's like, I'm going. Paul, I'm going. Do you start to see what I mean by barbarian? Fearless, untamable. These are ordinary Christians, friends. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the step we take when at 84 or 14 or 7 or 28, or in my case, 19 years old, we say, I'm for Jesus. He says, I'm going to make you a barbarian. You know, driving down with two of our boys this morning, driving up here this morning, I was talking to them in the car. They were sitting in the front. I only got two of the four with me today. We're, they're sitting in the front. We're chatting away. And uh, I, said, uh, I said, boys, I'm talking to the grown-ups there about what it means to be a Christian. What do you think I'm going to say? And they came out with all those kind of right answers with very bored voices. Be a nice person. <gasps> Whatever. And I said, do you know what I'm going to say, boys? I'm going to tell all the grown-ups they need to be fearless barbarians. The boys were like, What? like their eyes were twinkling and Jonas who's a bit of a Tarzan he says does that mean we're going to take our shirts off I'm like no where did that come come from yeah but doesn't it excite you a little bit like that doesn't it excite you a little bit do you sometimes think oh if only I would dare only I would dare let me give you one other example. What about those amazing women at the end of the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? They're there in all of them. You can read the shortest account in Mark chapter 16. It includes Jesus' own mother. They walk to their death to anoint a corpse. Lawless. Unimaginable faith. They walk to what they know is going to be their death, that God intervenes. But in their mind, it's to their death. Those, those soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb were to slaughter anybody who tried to steal his body. That was their job. They weren't going to politely say, sorry, turn around. They were there to kill anyone who tried to steal the body and claim that Jesus had come back to life. They know that, those women. And they walk to their death for a corpse because they're so desperate to be near Jesus and to be where Jesus is. Doesn't that kind of faith blow you away? Doesn't it make you wonder, it does me as a parent, make you wonder what kind of faith I'm breeding in my children? Doesn't it terrify you if you do happen to be a parent about what your children might do with their lives? Well, what I want to do this morning is to take us into this hall of faith that is Hebrews 11 and see what it teaches us about this fearless way of living. 
Because what I long for in Beacon Church, you see, is that we are made up of fearless singles and fearless soldiers and fearless teenagers and fearless teachers and fearless mechanics and and fearless folk facing mental health and fearless in the face of cancer. Fearless, because we do not know where God will take us, but we do know he is good. We just sung it, didn't we? So I want to show us how we're not singing lies, but we're singing Bible truth. I do not know where he will take me. But I do know he is good. And so I will go. The answer lies in sentences 13 to 16. I want to read it again. And as I read it, ask the question, where do these people really live? Which world do they really live in? As I read it. Sentence 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you see that? They are fearless barbarians in this world because they live somewhere else, in a different country, in a different city, where wild acts and inconceivable trust are normal. Did you see that there? God is preparing a, sit, a better country, a heavenly city. This is where you are now residents if you trust in Jesus. And in that city, inconceivable acts of trust in Jesus and outrageous costs to follow his command. That's just normal living. And that is where they're now truly from. That is where if you trust Jesus, that is where you are now truly from. You might live in this world, but that is your home. And there, doing these wild things, everyone just says, standard, normal, now special there. Here, in this world, it's abnormal because this world is the broken world, isn't it? But in the perfect world that when you trust Jesus, that is now your city of residence. That is your passport stamp. That is where you live. You live as if you are there. The perfect, wonderful, beautiful place where wild acts and inconceivable trust are normal. Are normal. The two key words, if you like, in what I've read are the words looking and longing. Do you see the word looking in sentence 14? Would you look down with me? People who say such things that they're a foreigner and a stranger and wild and people who do and say these outrageous John the Baptist, Luke 7, prostitute woman type things, those who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. They're looking forward to the future, the place that's to come. Or the word longing, sentence 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And then right at the end, sentence 16, that God has prepared that city, that country for them. They're looking and they're longing for that future place. Even if they're living here by faith, they are looking and longing for that place. So friends, if we are a Jesus follower, there are some words that should never describe us about our life in this world. We should never feel satisfied 
about this world. We should never feel content or settled or at home. You've given up on Jesus if those words are true. In fact, the follower of Jesus who is looking and longing for this city to come and living as if they were already there, living as if they are already in that city, now outrageously and trustingly and inconceivably and incomprehensibly living that life now, the words that describe that kind of person are dissatisfied and unsettled and discontent and frustrated and misplaced and longing and looking for the more that is to come and living it out today. Now we're then given in Hebrews chapter 11 about eight examples of what that looks like, eight ordinary everyday women and men who demonstrated this longing and looking, this outrageous, fearless, barbarian living today. Now we haven't got time this morning to eight. Okay, that's, we haven't got time to do eight. And two is going to be more than sufficient. And this is where the rubber's going to hit the road for you, Okay. It has, has for me. I've had to deal with all eight all week. You only get two on a Sunday morning, okay? The first I want to look at is, is Abraham. Would you have a look at Abraham with me? The, these are, he's in sentences 17 to 20. And these are the people who obey and worship with furious abandonment and outrageous cost when there is nothing tangible left of God's evidence. That all they have is the promise All they have is God's word of this city to come. All they have is that God has promised it. All they have is God and everything else is gone. And yet they still worship and they still trust. Look at Abraham, sentence 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. See, here you have a father and a son in in mutual agreement, the the father to sacrifice the son. And Isaac at this point is bigger, older, stronger, faster than his father. He's a grown man with an old dad. There is no way Abraham could force this upon Isaac. Isaac chose it. It's remarkable. I don't know whose faith is greater. Abraham the father's willingness to sacrifice his one and only son or Isaac the son's readiness to be sacrificed at the father's hand. Oh, hang on a minute. Have we heard that story before? That's an aside, isn't it? Yeah. The point here, you see, is Abraham was able to surrender a son to God's promise even when that was far from his hopes for his own child. Isn't that remarkable, faith? The question really it raises for us is what will you do when God asks you to surrender your most treasured thing? What will you do in fearless abandonment and trust in Jesus when God asks you to surrender the thing that you most treasure? Now, Jesus, the one and only son, has been sacrificed. There is never going to be a request to sacrifice a child ever again. Jesus has done that. But we are called, if we're parents, talking to you for parents for a moment, we are called to be ready to surrender our own children to God's purposes, even when those purposes are far, 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 far from what we hoped and dreamed they might be for our children. That could be because he calls us to serve and sacrifice and surrender in such a way that our children bear the cost. 
that actually our children will not experience all the things we benefited from and experienced when we were growing up because the call of Jesus on our life is into a career path or a vocation that just doesn't have the financial award attached to it. And so our children bear the cost. What will we do when Jesus asks us to surrender what we most treasure, the upbringing of our children, in the way that we perceive is best? Or what will your heart do when it is your child now a grown woman in her own right, who Jesus says, go to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Go to Baghdad, or Nanjing, or South Sudan. And it's your child that Jesus gifts with that calling to take Jesus where no one else would fear to dread Because the likelihood of imprisonment and torture and rape and death. And it's your child. What will you do when you are called to surrender the thing that you most treasure? Terrifies me, personally. Some of you know that one of my prayers when I first arrived here at the church six years ago, just over six years ago, one of the half a dozen central prayers that I felt God had laid on my heart in leading this church is that we would be a seedbed of our children sent into some of the hardest places in the world to take Jesus. That we as a church would breed barbarians, fearless, and little fetuses of today, and two-year-old tots, and beautiful little princesses running around that some of them, Jesus would gift us as a church, as a seedbed of sending them to places we may never see them again. And I would dedicate and baptise and bury some of them. And what terrifies me is four of those children are my own. And what's going on in my heart if Jesus called me to sacrifice and surrender what I most treasured. And friends, you don't get away with this if you don't have children, I'm afraid. No sigh of relief if you don't have children. Because if it's not children, it's something else you treasure deeply. Some of us are single and we long to be married, to have that deep companionship and the opportunity of children of our own. And Jesus says to us, no, the call on you is to stay single. Because actually you don't marry him, you don't marry her unless they love Jesus as profoundly and deeply as you do. And so the call on you is to be single. And what will you do when Jesus says to you to give up that thing you most treasure, that hope of marriage and children? What will you do? It's pretty profound, isn't it? It's not a domesticated faith. It's not a nice faith. It's not a gentle faith. Faith defined like that is not Bible faith. God looks at that, he spits it out, he vomits it out, he's disgusted by it. It's called religion, by the way. What he wants is barbarians. Fearless, untamable, wild, uncontrollable, barbarians of faith. One more. I told you two would be enough, didn't I? I said two would be enough. It's enough, isn't it? So one more. One more. Will you look at me with Jacob, sentence 21? Jacob, just sentence 21, who worships even as his family are in an exiled foreign place 
and he worships, even though he physically is blind and cannot see, but he cannot also see what God is doing. He has no answers why God has done this. It's like they're living under a curse. He doesn't know why. He cannot see. He cannot see. All he can do is worship. Let me read it, sentence 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's son and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. Old man Jacob, leaning on his white cane, praying for his grandsons. Unable to see why God has brought them to this foreign place, Egypt. Unable to have his body buried properly because he's a stranger in a foreign land. Unable to see anything, anything of what God is doing because he's blind in every meaning of that word. And so what, he, what can he do? He worships. He worships. What will you do when you cannot see and cannot understand and all you have is a promise from God? You're blind. You cannot see what God is doing in your life. Why the cancer? Why the stroke? Why the children who don't love Jesus? Why the dementia? You cannot see. It's interesting to ask, why do you expect to see? Why do you expect that God will listen to your demanding grumbles to be told? He didn't even tell Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane what he was doing. What do you do at that moment? Barbarian, fearless faith worships in blindness. See, I don't know how you think of following Jesus. I don't know how you portray it to your work colleagues, how you try and help your husband to see it, how you raise your children. But friends, Bible faith, there is nothing domestic. There is nothing nice about Bible faith. It breeds barbarians. Fearless, untamable, unrestrainable, law unto themselves, Jesus followers. Where the rules of this world do not count because they live in another world. And it's that world that defines how they live now. A world where unflinching confidence in Jesus and outrageous obedience to his commands and inconceivable acts of faith are normal. And we're just called to live that normality in a world that is broken. So actually, weirdly, (laughs) we're the most normal people there are in this world. Yeah? Because that one lasts for eternity. Yeah, doesn't it? So when you take the average out of eternity, eternity wins. Yeah? We're just called to live normal lives. But what's normal in that world is wild and untamable in this one. It's like when they brought Tarzan back from the jungle. Yeah? Or Crocodile Dundee from the outback. Do you remember the film? Yeah? Yeah? Remember when he tried a B-Day for the first time? (laughs) Looked untamable and wild. He's just living normal. Normal to what he's used to. Can I leave you with a last thought? I was talking about this with the boys. Last night, this was. And as they're reading it through, they read that it says all these people died. And Isaac, who's into funerals a bit at the moment, there's been two kids in his class who have lost 
mothers recently. So they're talking, obviously, in the classroom about funerals and things. He very proudly said, Daddy, I know what this is then, Hebrews 11. He says, it's their eulogies, isn't it? And he's right. It's their short one sentence, two sentence eulogies. And it made me think, I wonder what our eulogy will be. One of the privileges of a pastor is I get to bury people. It's a beautiful, profound, and terrifying thing. And I hear lots of eulogies. And they're hard to hear and guide people through. And they're beautiful and they're stunning. But lots of them are very similar, friends. Not weaker or less because of that. But they're very similar. She was a fantastic mother. She raised us really well. She showed us love. She helped build my career. There's a funny story interjected, you know, that captures who they are. It's beautiful. I don't want a eulogy like that. Alex, he was untamable. Alex, just wild. I want us to have those kind of eulogies, yeah? He's a barbarian. That's what I want my boys to say. That's what I want my boys to say when they bury me. If it's that way round in God's providence. I pray it is. Desperately, my goodness, do I pray it is. That's what I want them to say. I want them to carry on their shoulders a, a dead barbarian. A barbarian. Okay, I'm going to ask you to talk to someone. Are you ready? Okay. What is the thing that God has embedded on your heart this morning? So if you're able to talk to someone, if you don't, if you need time on your own, just take that time on your own. Just, you can signal that, can't you? But if you feel able, I really, really encourage you to dare to share. Dare to share. Verbalize it to someone sitting near you. What has God embedded on your heart? What is God embedded on your heart this morning? You've got two minutes. Off you go. Dare to share. Off you go. Off you go.